Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that you've preserved from Isaiah the prophet. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you might open our hearts, that we might hear this word, and that you might change us, that we live in obedience to you. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I want to give you a little bit of background to the prophet that we're going to be spending a number of weeks in over the course of this year. We're not doing the whole book in one sitting. We've got two series planned, uh, one for the start of the year and one towards the end. And we want to just set you up a little bit. Who is Isaiah? What's the scenario uh, that he's dealing with? Uh, A while ago, I used this illustration, and so I thought I'd put it back up again. Uh, the, The basis for the whole prophecy... Uh, is not any original thinking, really, on behalf of Isaiah. He's calling God's people to a covenant. He's calling them back to an agreement between them and God. And uh, I I was thinking about the fact that we we sign many agreements uh, every day, and one one of the ones that we do on a regular basis is like this, uh, bits of computer software where they come up, and as you install them, you get a, a set of terms of agreement that sort of look like this, and then a little thing comes up like that and says... Uh, I have read and agree the terms of the software license agreement. And, of course, you've all carefully read it, haven't you? You know, every now and again, just for kicks, I actually read them. Uh, Or that one I haven't read. I think it's 26 pages long. But I've looked at it. And so we all lie a little bit and we say, yes, I'm aware of all the terms of the conditions and I'm going to agree. And that's the way we're going to have our relationship go forward from here on the basis of this agreement. God made a very detailed covenant or agreement with his people. He said, this is how we are to live together. This is how we are to relate well. The covenant is the absolute foundation for the prophecy, the word of God that Isaiah brings to the people. So he says, I'm calling you back to something you should know. There should be no surprises here. Some of the language might be surprising, but the ideas are not new. They're an obligation that Israel agreed to enter into with God. Well, what's the big picture? I have a, uh, a literal picture of the, uh, the way the Bible works from creation here uh, all the way in the New Testament through to new creation. And if we zoom in a little bit here on, uh, on that part there, we see that uh, God's people have taken the promised land. He's given them kings to rule over that land. And we're before where the covenant curses come home. There's an exile where the people of God get kicked out of the promised land because they have persistently sinned against God. Isaiah's writing just at the end of this period and predicting that this will come to pass, that the people will lose the land. He's writing in that sort of area. Uh, what's it look like geographically? Uh, this is a nation of Israel. Uh, if you've been with us through the King series, hopefully this looks very familiar. And if you're wondering any of the background, Matt did a particularly helpful um, overview of this uh, on a number of the sermons that, we, that we've looked at. started off with Israel as one big land with a temple in the middle. And after Solomon, uh, everything split in two. We had a guy called Jeroboam uh, ruling up the north, and he split into two different centres of worship to make people not feel the loss of Jerusalem. So Judah down here, Israel up here. For the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is writing to Judah, very specifically. He's not worried about Israel per se. And more specifically, he's writing to Jerusalem or the holy city or Zion. You'll hear all of these words kind of used to describe the center point, the target, the focus of his prophecy. So Uh, We're kind of forgetting about up here, this country here, and then more particularly in Jerusalem. 
What's the political picture? Again, our King series worked through this very carefully, but just to sort of put it on the, on the, on the plate. Uh, Israel is a small nation and there are superpowers around it. The nation of Israel down here, the nation of Assyria up north and with it Babylon. And it's a bit of a football that gets kicked around by the big powerful nations. Uh, the time that Isaiah writes to, uh, is writing about and also speaking about in the future will involve these kingdoms. And there's four kings. If you have a look at Isaiah chapter 1, you can see Isaiah tells us the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. There are four kings that essentially Isaiah writes about to concerning. Uh, their, uh, their lengths of reign are here, um, up here, and thumbs across, thumbs down, thumbs up for whether God liked them or didn't like them. Um, pay attention to our King series and you can catch up with, with what that's about. But Isaiah's writing in this very tumultuous period in the history of Israel and Judah. It's at least 40 years long, long from 740 BC to about 701 BC, but it could definitely be longer than that, maybe even as long as 60 years. So Isaiah's a very active prophet and he's speaking into the life of a nation torn apart, tossed about like a football on the storms of the political uh, history page. Uh, let's uh, go a little bit further and think about what, what, is it, what does it sound like to listen to the book of Isaiah? Now, I could ask you guys, you've just been listening yourselves to that first chapter being read. At times, you will find the book of Isaiah uncomfortable. That's actually as it should be. And I think part of the challenge for Matt and I as we preach will actually be to make you feel uncomfortable without making you get up and leave. <laughs> uh, we need to hear a prophetic voice poking us where we're tender and where we're blind to our sin. Isaiah speaks to the nation of Judah and he says, you are wrong in these areas and we should feel uncomfortable. At the same time, he speaks some of the most beautiful, evocative, extraordinary things that you'll hear in the whole Bible. It's profoundly unforgettable. And we're going to have a journey through this book and we're going to hear the uncomfortable, and I want you to hear that, and the unforgettable, the beautiful, the awesome, and I want you to hear that too. So I want you to listen for the tone of the prophet who's speaking here. Uh, here's, here's the scroll of Isaiah. You can read that, obviously, from the back row there, I'm sure. Um, this one was found uh, in a cave in 1947. They think it was written about 150 years before Jesus. It's an incredibly old document. It's from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's seven metres long and 30 centimetres high. That's the size of the book of Isaiah. Matt mentions it's a big book. It's the fifth largest book in the Bible. Uh, it has 400 quotes or allusions that are picked up in the New Testament. Why does that matter? We should know and love Isaiah because those who wrote the New Testament knew and loved Isaiah. So if we want to be shaped by God's passions, hear God's concern, yeah, we want to read the New Testament, but we want to hear something that's echoed so readily in the New Testament. Have a listen to this one for an example. Uh, this is Jesus in Luke chapter 4. It says, He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, I don't know if they handed to him a seven-metre-long scroll. Because that's big, right? But the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, 
And unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. Okay, I'm just a bit of a vivid thinker. Seven metres? Anyway, he found the place where it was written. Amazingly, well done, Jesus. And this is what he said. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, what's he doing there? He's reading Isaiah. But as he sits down, he says, I tell you today, these words are fulfilled in your presence. The book of Isaiah that we're reading is saturating the New Testament. Jesus himself picks these words up to speak of himself. This book really matters. So we're going to spend weeks this year in the book of Isaiah. We're going to think about the unstoppable plans of the Holy God. And we're going to start today in chapter 1. So let's dive in. Matt's encouraged us to have it open in front of us. So thank you for Matt. Let's, um, let's have a read of uh, verses 2 to 4 here. Isaiah chapter 1. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord, they've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. What, what, what's the opening address like how's he trying to set up this whole book well he's saying essentially that israel has done something that even dumb animals don't do they have forgotten their father they have lost their father they have lost their faithfulness you know in the covenant god set them aside he said you are to be my holy people you are to be a light for the nations You are to be the difference makers in this world. And what had happened was that as they lost their father, as they turned away from God their father, they turned to become just like the nations around them. They lost their father, they lost their faithfulness, and then at the end there it talks about you've got untreated wounds. You're like a nation whose sores are untreated. You don't even know that you're unwell anymore. You've lost the very health and vitality of yourself as a nation because you've lost your holy father. It's it's worth just noting for a second here. It's one thing to say our nation is founded on great principles. And and maybe as Australia Day we we can think about some of that. But, But here's the thing. Israel wasn't just founded on great principles. It was founded by a great father. God says, you're my children. So it wasn't just that they were forgetting some ideas that they should have hung on to. They'd left the very God that they were supposed to be seeking. It says they've forsaken him where God had set them to be up a people who seek him. It's a profound loss and it's putting sickness into the bones of the nation. They're a devastated country. Foreigners have overrun them because they've neglected their father who called them to this very precious purpose of being his children. Let's look a little bit further along. Let's read Isaiah 9 uh, to verse 15. Uh, Isaiah 1, 9 to 15. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. I'll just stop there for a second. Does everyone know Sodom and Gomorrah? If you've never heard of them before, uh, they are the 
poster children for what it looks like when you get on God's bad side. Okay? They were, they were the worst sinful people that the Old Testament can imagine. And what happened to them was they didn't just get a light slap on the wrist. God rained down fire from heaven and destroyed the city. Now, when it says here, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah, it's saying if God hadn't been merciful, we deserved to be wiped off the map like the most sinful city in the history of the Old Testament. And then God gets even more full on. Have a listen to this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's not actually writing to the physical town of Sodom and Gomorrah because it doesn't exist anymore. He's saying, Jerusalem, you are like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we'll sit here and go, oh, that's interesting. If you're in Jerusalem, remember I was saying it would have been uncomfortable, you would have been outraged that God was saying your city was Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of the rams and fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. I hate them with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I won't listen. Can you hear that? It's extraordinary, isn't it? God's saying, this religious stuff you do, I hate. I hate it. Where were they doing it? It wasn't even that they were doing it on pagan altars. This was in the temple. He's saying, I hate what you do in the temple. What you do in the temple is nothing of value to me. It's trampling of the courts. You you may as well be walking around in the public loo. It doesn't matter. This is nothing pleasing to me. So so here's here's the punch. God hates religion. God hates religion. And you think, hang on, hang on, hang on. That, that messes with my brain a bit, doesn't it? Didn't God found a religion? So, like, what's, how, how can we say he hates religion? Well, I want you to think about how the religion arrives in Israel. First thing is, God chooses his people. Then God saves his people. And then he gives them a law. And then he asks them to respond in obedience to what he's telling them. Notice this very carefully. God doesn't give them a religion and then save them. Can you see the difference? They're not saved by doing the things. God saves them and then tells them how he wants them to live. The flow is in this direction. Religion is the show of thankfulness, the heart of obedience, the act of faithfulness in response to God's saving grace. We're not saved by religion. God hates that. In fact, we could say... Form without faith is a failure. What I mean is, if you sit here in this chair in church, brilliant, by the way, glad you're here, but but here's the thing, if you're just sitting here and your heart is wishing that you were fishing uh, or you just wish you were somewhere cooler, no, 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 that's that's all of us probably. Uh, if If you're not here, heart, soul, completely, I just want you to know on the scorecard, God isn't putting any good points on your board 
It, it's to no advantage that you're physically present. If you don't bring faith, trust in God, a belief in who he is and what he's asking us to do, if you don't bring that, there's nothing here that's worthwhile. So I would say to you, I'm going to be daring enough to say this, I would say to you, don't come to church, don't come to church if you're just here to trample the carpet. The carpet would appreciate it, I'm sure. But here's the thing. If you're trying to work out whether you're just trampling the courts, if you're trying to work out whether God is for you, if you're trying to work out what your relationship with God, we're saying, please keep coming. God sees that and he loves that. Religion, just acting out the pantomime of religion, does nothing for you or God. In fact, the danger is you think it's doing something for you and it stops you truly engaging with God. Form without faith is a failure. Let's have a look at verses 18 to, uh, to 23 a little bit further on. Have a listen to how beautiful this is. Right, We've been hearing angry God, and, and some, some people have kind of like a, um, a two-God kind of model. There's, uh, there's the God who uh, is of the Old Testament, the angry God, and then there's Jesus who comes along and magically makes everything good. If we only get rid of that Old Testament God, we'd have a religion that we like. Well, first of all, you don't know Jesus. Jesus gets angry at religion as well. Did you know that? In fact, Jesus clears the temple courts from people who've turned it into a supermarket. Do you remember that? So here's the thing. There aren't two gods. We have a God who is justly angry against sin, and we have an extraordinarily gracious God who, next to his justice and his anger at sin, offers beautiful forgiveness and restoration. Have have a listen to it here. Verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you'll eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver, that precious thing, has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. What's he saying? He's saying here you are stained by your sin. Though your sins be like scarlet, we kind of think, oh, it's a kind of nice colour. I like red. Uh, it's, It's a symbol of staining. Blood red, you're drenched in your sin. Though your sin be red as scarlet, it will be white as wool. And probably not Australian wool, which has been out in the bush getting dusty for, you know, we kind of have this dirty grey. It's pure, beautiful, fresh, made new. That's what uh, is on offer here from our God. And notice what he links it to. If you are willing and obedient, verse 19, you will eat the good things of the land, but if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. These are covenant blessings. Remember the land of milk and honey? Always think that would be awkward to walk around. Anyway, I'm a bit literal in these ways. Um, 
But the idea is God speaks of the land flowing with milk and honey in the covenant terms. What that means is it's an abundant land. I'm offering you an incredible blessing. Choose it. It'll be great. If you turn from it, the sword will devour you. You will lose this precious land. What's your choice going to be? It's a bit of a no-brainer really, isn't it? So what, what essentially Isaiah is saying here, God is saying through Isaiah, is that there are covenant conditions. If you do wrong, you will reap the whirlwind. If you do right, there is actually a covenant cleansing, a beautiful fresh start. I think the opportunity to have our slate wiped clean, to start again, is profoundly beautiful. The New Testament talks of us having a clear conscience. God says, I will clean you up. The covenant conditions also offer covenant cleansing. The last little bit here before I bring it home for us, we see it in verses 24 and 28. Have a look at the end of the chapter here. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. Now at this point, everyone's cheering, right? You've got to to think how the Israelites are hearing this. Ah, God's going to vent his anger on his enemies. Awesome, bring down those Assyrians. Yeah, have a look at the next line. I will turn my hand against, what's it say? You. I'll turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross. Now, what's dross? Dross is everything that isn't pure in silver. So when you're trying to refine silver to make it 100% pure, there are impurities in it. And they'd heat it up and heat it up and heat it up, and the dross would be purified out. So what it's saying here is, I will thoroughly purge away your dross. The furnace will be applied and I'll remove the sinful and the disgusting and the terrible away from you. I'll remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. And afterwards, the city that has been called a prostitute will be called what? The city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken. Those who forsake the Lord will, pen- will perish. Okay, here's the, here's, the, here's the question for today. Uh, how many people use the word penitent in their everyday life? No one. So when it says the penitent ones will be saved, we're like, oh, that's good. What? They hang penance on their walls? Is that, what? Who gets saved? Here's the thing. Have a look at the sign up the back there. Can you see the sign? What's the sign for? You can do better than that. What is it? You turn. Absolutely. Here's the thing. Penitent. Forget that word. Repentant. What does repentant mean? Because who uses that as well? You turn. Changing your direction. Acknowledging the way you're going is leading to destruction. Turning around and coming back to God. Those who turn around and come back to God, they will be saved. They will be saved by God and his faithfulness. And the beautiful promise here is that although she's a prostitute at the moment, the holy city will be restored. This gem in God's plan will become the city of righteousness yet again. That's great. That's extraordinary. All right. How do we move from ancient Israel? This this stuff is happening 700 BC. So let's just add up the maths. 2,700 years ago. To a group of people that we probably don't know very much about, 
in a situation that we don't know very much about, how on earth does that reach us today? What, what's the challenge for us here today? I want to call our attention to the, uh, the first reading that was brought to us from James. New Testament, hey? Great. Clearly got to apply to us. So let's, let's just hear what it says and then think about what the implication may be. Uh, in James 1, uh, 26 to 27, it says this. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. That's a good start, isn't it? You run off at the mouth and you're undervaluing the purpose, the value, the, the core of your religion. That's a bit awkward. On top of that, religion that the God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. What does true religion look like? Like this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep, keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You want to know what true religion looks like? It's like that. Here's the thing. God loves true religion. Notice that this word religion keeps coming up. It's not that God hates all religion. Everything that's called religion is inherently wrong. No, he's just saying, I'm going to redefine religion for you. You know what religion is? It's purity and right living. But, so that sounds good, but, well, holidays come along and I kind of forget about it. Or or maybe um, I'm building a house at the moment, so I kind of forget about it. Or maybe I'm buying a handbag. Or maybe I'm buying hardware, which is very important. Um, Or maybe I've just got the hassles of this life. And so we know these things to be true. We know what God wants from us. But this stack of things just overwhelms us and we think, I'll get get around to it sometime later. I've heard what true religion is. I've heard that if I'm not doing these things, it's worthless. But sometime later. I'll fit it in later. That would be a tragic mistake. That would be the impossible application of this sermon. You walk out going, yeah, I think that was pretty good talk. I think I'm going to ignore it completely. That would be a tragedy. I want to introduce you to a couple that um, I met at Fig Tree, my, my previous church. Uh, you're, I'm going to tell you, I just want to set you up for this story. I'm going to tell you what they've done. And you're going to think they're extraordinary and weird and unusual and they're not at all like me. promise you you'll be thinking that. And I want to tell you, I knew them before they were extraordinary and weird. And no, no, They're normal people. They just made some extraordinary choices based on their understanding of who God is and what he's on about. So, so here's this couple. Uh, this is Mark and Anna Domkins. And this is their family. Uh, Mark and Anna uh, had uh, two kids when they went to Tanzania. They, they had great jobs working in Christian schools, teaching, beautiful Couple, two kids, nice place. They're, they're doing great. Lots of great friends. And they, they actually, there's some things in this world that we need to take care of. So they left with, uh, with Jackson and Jemima, and they went to Tanzania. They lived in Tanzania for four years. And whilst over there, they interacted with a orphanage there. And they started to get to know two beautiful little kids, Shay and Charlie who were twins, these guys here. And uh, as they were interacting with them, they thought, you know what, these kids have no hope. I mean, it's a good orphanage and that's great, but literally this is their whole world. 
they're orphans, they're, they're lost, they, they don't have any hope in this world. We have, as a family, the capacity to love. That's what we have. We have a gospel conviction that loving the least is actually on God's agenda. And so what they chose to do is they said, we're going to adopt these two guys into our family. And so they did. Long, drawn-out process, really hard to do. Along the way, they found out that they actually had, they had another sibling. And so Jabari, they found out about later, was also one of their siblings. And they, they thought to themselves, what, what can we do? You know, we're going to take these beautiful kids and we're going to bring them to Australia, but we're going to leave behind. So what, what can we do? And their decision, well, let's adopt him as well. And so now they've come back to Australia and uh, they came back to Australia with five kids and then found that they were pregnant having Max, which is welcome. So that's now eight. Uh, now, you're, you hear that and you go, oh, what a brilliant story. I hope, that, I hope that's a poster somewhere and I can give some money to it. And, and look, you can actually give to support the, the orphanage and you can help out in that way. But here's the thing. We're already, already making a shift to say, oh, that's not my life stage. They've got different circumstances to me. They're not normal. They're weird. Do do you feel it happening? Not something I could do. They're out there. They're weirdos. But instead, ordinary, normal people, saved by Jesus, took some extraordinary decisions out of conviction because they love God and they love the least in the world around. Uh, Incidentally, uh, they're trying to work for um, reform of adoption laws in Australia. It takes five years, apparently, on average, to adopt someone in Australia. And they think that's, that's wrong. And so the other day, they met Tony Abbott. And they were talking to Tony, which is pretty exciting, to reform those laws. Well, I show you them to say we can do so much more here. Have a listen to what God says in verses 15 to 17. Uh, he, says, he says this. Uh, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my stock. Sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Please plead the case of the widow. Well, what do we do? I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. I want to be better at this. I want this value to be stitched into our life together as a church. What are we suggested to do here? We need to begin a new life. A life that's actually different from those around us, changed by God. What will that mean? We need to decisively leave the old life. Stop doing wrong. Have you? Stop doing wrong. Leave the old life. Don't let it keep hanging around. Stop. Decisively leave the old. We need to develop a a new mind. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Well, I'm seeking to make sure I wash my car this afternoon. Where where does this godly concern come from that grips my mind, that changes my life? We need to develop a new mind. And we need to devote ourselves to new priorities. What if we did this? What if we did this? We have a plan here at New Life Anglican Church. It's a little document, this big. Call it our tree brochure. It's It's got these things on it. Faithful, adventurous, compassionate, enduring. Faithful, adventurous, compassionate, enduring. Underneath each of them, 
So they don't just exist in space are some questions we want to ask one another about how to live them out. So let's zoom in on this compassionate value. We want to be a church that's compassionate, that is hearing Jesus' call to love. Well, in the middle it says this, how are you bringing Jesus' love to the least? Karen and I had a great chat the other night, just sitting down going, we're doing terribly with this. We know that it's our responsibility. And look, some of you are doing great with this. Can I encourage you to keep doing it? Some of you are doing great. But for those of us who are doing nothing, let's start to think about what we can do. How are we showing Jesus' love to the least? This true religion that Isaiah was calling people back to. And here's here's what I've been thinking. What if I don't prescribe what I want you to actually do? What What if I don't lay it out in a plate for you and say, here's what I want you to do? What if... Matt and I push a challenge across to you to say, embody this compassionate value. Be creative. Seek God. Work out as a family how you can love the least. That's exciting. It's freeing. It's challenging. We want to provide you resources to help you do that, but here's how I want to finish today. I want you to hear the beautiful offer of God to people who fell short of his his holy standard, like us. Have a listen to the offer of God from verses 15 to 17. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters, friends, we cannot hear that today and walk out undecided. Choose today to find yourself on God's side. Find yourself on God's side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your justice and your mercy. Father, deal mercifully with us Renew in us a heart of love for the oppressed, for the fatherless, for the widow, for the powerless. Father, help us to be found on your side with the cleansing you offer us in Jesus. And we ask it for his sake. Amen.